0: time for coffee with the chicken ladies a podcast for people who love chickens hey everybody and welcome it's and holly from coffee with the chicken ladies we're here and this is episode number 83 of our podcast where we talk about everything chicken family fun and more chickens more chickens we drink a ton of coffee i'm talking a ton but most importantly, we hug chickens every day. And we kiss them too, don't forget. We brew coffee from a little coffee house here in Bel Air, Maryland. Holly Ann, what kind of coffee are we brewing today? Colombian. It's Colombian. And it's cold brew Colombian too, because mm-hmm. it is hot. It's overnight. ninety. Really so are you ready to sip some coffee and chat? I am. But first, a word from our sponsor. We have some exciting news to share from our sponsor, Grubly Farms. This month, you can receive 25% off if you're a first-time buyer. I'm a long-time subscriber, and my flock love the healthy, nutritious treats, plus all products ship free. If you haven't heard, Grubly's has a fantastic layer pellet and crumble feed. It's packed with plant and insect protein. It's perfect for those picky chickens and ducks. This offer does not apply to subscriptions and cannot be combined with any other discounts. It's a great time to try Grubly Farms if you haven't yet. Use the code COFFEELADIES25. Try it today. Okay. So how was your week? My week was good. It was busy. It's been really busy. I thought things would calm down for June and it's just kept rolling. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. Lots of busy stuff. Mm -hmm. You've been planting a lot of stuff in your garden. Every time Uh, I talk to you, you're planting. Well, I'm planting perennials and roses. Yeah. And I count roses as herbs as well as being gorgeous. But so a lot of herbs and pollinator perennials are going in. Right. And then I'm planting food crops. Yeah. I do have stuff coming in the fall to plant too. Nice. <laughs> I got out yesterday and weeded the front bed, which desperately needed. My neighbors are probably like, "Thank you, the front of the house <laughs> needed you." Because I focus a lot on the back because that's where I put all my plants. It's where mm-hmm. we are mostly all the right. time. The front of the house, we really aren't there. Yeah, but you don't see it. It's just the neighbors looking at it. The neighbors driving by, they're like, "Weed your garbage." <laughs> Those are native perennial plants. They're not weeds. They're native perennials. Oh, yeah. They just don't know it. They don't know it. But yeah, I was like, we look like the haunted house in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to get out there and weed it. Gertie likes that garden now. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, and I said to Sophia, I'm like, come out and weed with me. And she's like, okay, because that's embarrassing. So we got out there. It took us like three hours. That's not like the little tiny weeds. So we still have to go back and do like the little tiny, uh-huh. tiny weeds. You know, with having COVID in May, that's when I normally do it. Going to Mexico, May was a blur. Uh-huh. I know I'm sounding like I'm making an excuse, but I mean, these are all first world problems in yeah. a lot of ways. Hey, it's done. Well, on the other hand, it's the stuff you really want to get to you your property. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it's done. So just ready for more summer fun. Okay. Fourth of July is coming up in days. Yes, it is. What do you have planned? We really don't do anything on Fourth of July. We like it quiet. Neither one of us like loud noises. My neighbors. Oh, you got loud neighbors sometimes. Uh, My my neighbors can be very loud. (laughs) I was trying to find a nice (laughs) word, but they can be very loud. And all of that's fine. I don't care, except they shoot off fireworks and it scares my sheep. And I do not like that. Yeah. I don't understand why you can't live in a farming community and just respect people's livestock. And not put off fireworks. (laughs) Yeah. I'm never going to get it. I'm never going to get it. We've been the last few years just staying around the house and mm-hmm. doing things with our neighbors and yeah. that are now friends of ours. And just going from house to house and saying, okay, you make some hot dogs, sitting over there for oh, a that's while. nice. And then coming over here for a drink. And then we have badminton up. And then at night, we kind of do put off the low ground show. That's not really that noisy. Mm-hmm. The kids like sparklers and stuff like that. You're not sending anyone sheep screaming for the hills. No. So, <laughs> so we end up doing that and just kind of hanging out with our neighbors. Everything's so expensive these days, including gas prices. Right, right. We're like, we're not gonna go anywhere. Yeah, I feel like you and I always do our history tour for our fourth of July episode. We've done that the past couple of years, which is super fun. And you know, I usually make some kind of a fun dessert, blueberry tart or whatever. Oh yeah. I'm a historian, so I know the history. And so <laughs> watch Hamilton. The girls and we I are could, gonna watch yes, Hamilton. We could watch Hamilton, but we'll be sticking close to home. Yeah, we're definitely close to home, that's for sure. We do have a fun episode planned because we did take a little field trip. Yeah. Oh, the other thing we wanted to let everyone know, we have a blog post that was just published on Omelette's blog. We're super excited about it. It was really fun. We did an article on how to keep your chickens cool and gave a couple of recipes for our favorite summer treats for the chickens. Some tried and true that we use every season. So you can check out the post on the Omelette US site, blog.omelette.us. There's also a link on our smart bio on Instagram. And on our website. And on our website. So check it out. We're excited about it. Mm -hmm. Exciting stuff. So, if I can just ask everybody a huge favor, if you're listening to our show and you're loving it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review. It does amazing things for the growth of our show. And while you're there, hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. That's another way we grow our show. You can also share your favorite episodes on social media. You can tell a chicken-loving friend about them. You can visit our Etsy shop, see the t-shirts that we have on sale. You can become a patron of the show patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies check out our levels of membership the other thing you can do to help support the podcast is visit our show notes use our affiliate links and buy product from our sponsors yay hey chris yeah do you like subscription boxes does it have anything to do with chickens of course then yeah let me just take a minute to tell you about the chicken love box if you love goodies for your chickens and you you need to go to chickenlove.com i love the Mega Box. Tons of useful products for my flock and a chicken tea for me. You can't go wrong with a chicken tea. They are so cute and so soft. In the June box, I absolutely love the embroidered rooster apron and the egg carton stickers. I love those chicken leg bands with charms and the egg cartons that go with those stickers. Boxes start at $39 a month. They ship immediately after your purchase and shipping is always free. It's such a great deal. Don't wait. Get off the nest and click already. Use the code CWTCL50 for 50% off your first box with at least a three-month subscription. That's chickenlove.com. That's chickenluv.com. Get your subscription today. Have you heard of Strong Animals Chicken Essentials? They make natural supplements for your flock. Strong Animals has used plant-based products and natural approaches to promote the health and vitality of backyard flocks. Their products contain organic essential oils prebiotics, and other natural ingredients to support the immune system and digestive health. Give your chicks and chickens what they need to thrive with Strong Animals health products. Visit GetStrongAnimals.com today. Now it's time for the breed spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. We are talking the Java. Java chicken. This is our first revisit. So, we talked about this chicken in episode 10, but we wanted to talk about it for our 4th of July episode because it's pretty important with the history of America and chickens. Right. The Java is supposed to be the second American breed of chicken behind the Dominique. Exactly. We wanted to look at it again and see if there's some things that we didn't really talk about before. Right. So, first of all, they're called Javas. I mean, it sounds like a totally exotic name, right? They're called Javas because the foundation stock were probably imported from the Isle of Java by sailors and settlers coming to America. If you're interested in the heritage or historical breeds at all, the Java is an important one. They were such a fixture in the daily lives of Americans through most of the 1800s that they were like taken for granted, the same way you take your favorite old car for granted or your favorite, forgive me, sneakers. We have talked about this chicken before. They were a workhorse for these people. They were just in your farm, laying eggs, nice, sturdy chicken. Exactly. They were a fantastic, solid breed. They weren't fancy show chickens, so there wasn't a lot written about them. Right. I mean, people with money tended to have show chickens, and right. they tended to do the writing. They are beautiful birds, though. Yes. They're not plain by any stretch of the imagination. And they're ones on our list. Absolutely. They've been on our list for a long For a time. long time. So one of the most important things about them is that they provided really a strong genetic foundation for three important American breeds, which are totally iconic. Yeah. So the Plymouth Rock, the Rhode Island Red, and the Jersey Giant. When we think of chickens in America, these are three chickens that come into our box. Especially the Rhode Island Red and the Plymouth Rock. Yes. Yes. I had to include my beloved Jersey Giants, (laughs) though. But the thing about the Java that you really need to know is that they are in major need of conservation help. Yes. And even in the census for this year, they had not come out in a good place. No. So they had been listed, I believe, on the watch list. Right. And so they dropped two places all the way down to critically endangered. Which is not good. No, not at all. So this is a chicken that does need our help. If it's a chicken that you would see in your flock, it's a larger chicken. Oh, they're big, yeah. Yeah, they're bigger. They're not as big as a Jersey Giant, but they are definitely a big chicken. You can really see the Java in the Jersey Giant. Most definitely. And the beautiful thing about Java is they're one of those breeds that are fantastic in a laid-back mixed flock. Yes. That's one of their main things is that they are Mm laid-back. And that they're friendly chicken. They're larger. Well, they're considered a dual-purpose fowl, okay? The hens are good layers, and they make an excellent homestead breed. Excellent. Because they're good layers with a good personality. Mm -hmm. So those things together, you want on a homestead with children and everybody else. They were extremely popular here in the mid-Atlantic because they were able to cope with our temperature extremes. Mm -hmm. So they could cope with the cold and they could cope with the heat and humidity. They're great foragers. Great foragers. Very hardy. Good mothers and good layers. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's just say they have the trifecta. They kind of do. I mean... They have it all and you can get them in an exciting kind of model Yes. Feather print. Yes. So, the Java was admitted to the American Poultry Association standard of perfection in two colors, the black and Mm -hmm. then the black-white modeled, which is our favorite. It's absolutely gorgeous. And they were admitted in 1883. Now, what you need to know about the Java, though, is that they actually come in four different colors. They do. There's a white, and then there's the auburn Java, which is absolutely gorgeous. I want to say the white may have been in the APA, but they dropped it because it was too similar to the white Plymouth Rock. Okay. But the Auburn was never admitted at all. So the Auburn is a large tawny red chicken. They have black spangles and then they have black lacing on their neck feathers. The roosters are copper and gold and they have this gorgeous full black green tail. Now, here's the thing to know about the Auburn. Number one, they're stunning. Number two, it was the Auburn Java that was the foundation for the Rhode Island Red. Well, I could see that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the coloring is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They are gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, my heart's still going to go with that model. Mine too, but I want the Auburn too. (laughs) (laughs) I want both. Yeah, so they're definitely a good chicken to have around. We don't want to lose this chicken. No. Again, we always say we want to be able to have availability to get these chickens. So I just I don't like seeing them when they're critically endangered. No, no, this no. breaks my heart. <laughs> they need our help. We need more people in their backyards to have this chicken because that's how they were. They basically were the second backyard chicken. They truly were so ubiquitous that they were taken for granted. And they're they here. Love it. They're doing their job, right? And then all of a sudden, they're not. Yeah. Where did they go? Well, I'll tell you this: they are big. They're huge. So let's go into size because you need to know what you're kind of dealing with before you get a chick for your homestead. For a standard breed, these are on the large side. Again, they're not Jersey Giant or Brahma huge, but they're big. Okay. So nine pounds plus for a rope. Mm-hmm. That's big. That's big. That is definitely big. Yeah. Hens are seven to eight. That's about Buff Warpington size. Right. Or Brahma. Brahma may be a little bigger. Brahma's can get bigger. If you have a coach in Abrama, mm-hmm. a Worthington—they're all around that same size. Right, so right. if you want hens, you're Lush not looking and- at anything much larger than what you're going to have. They have straight combs and wattles, red earlobes, blue slate legs with a yellow sole. That yellow sole is one of the easiest way to tell the difference between, say, a Java and a Jersey giant right. and an Australorp. Right. It's not one hundred percent, but generally it works. It's so cute. hmm There's not anything bad we can say about this chicken. The only and we'll say this at the end, is that it's hard to find them. That's my That's it. beef. That's, That's it. my pet peeve mm-hmm. is availability. It's hard to believe, but some people don't like big chickens. i don't don't get it i don't get it either i I can't wrap my chickens of all various sizes my flock and your flocks they're all mixed Mm -hmm. with smaller bigger everybody kind of gets along and goes their own way and does their own thing Mm -hmm. if you have bantams they need to be separate for sure but if you (laughs) have a moderate sized flock you can have leghorns and these javas together they can live together If you're a homesteader historically using this bird as a dual-purpose bird, then I don't think that that's a bad thing. Now, I did a ton more research because I was really trying to find a lot more on the Java, and it's just very difficult to find. The Java Breeders Club, it looks like it's now defunct, but there are some articles from just about 20 years ago. Okay. And one of the folks writing articles was saying they think that the Java had a lot of Asiatic blood in it. Okay. And I can see some of that. Right. But the other interesting theory they had is that the langshan kind of replaced the Java. And I get it. I'm not sure the time works out completely clearly, though, because the reality is that Java was more of a utilitarian bird. The Langshin was more of a show chicken. Yeah, they had two separate purposes. And I feel like the Langtions came in later anyway. Yeah. So it's an interesting theory. But again, it's just really hard to find anything about them. I think it's what you were saying is they're taken for granted. Yeah. And even more now with social media, we can help preserve it because everyone can show their own birds. mm -hmm. And then it gets everyone else excited about Hey, I really like that one. I want right. this one. You don't have to get the birds that your bestie has. Yes, we end up getting the same birds yes. a lot, but that's because we have very similar taste in chickens. But I feel like fashion is extraordinarily important. And the other thing were the two world wars, and they just changed the world completely. They did. Chickening really moved away from the smallholder and into industrial. Right. And we talked about this last time that we talked about the Java. With every heritage breed, sometimes they don't lay eggs till later. And that's normal for Mm -hmm. heritage breeds. What that does is pushes them out of industrialism, out of the egg-laying industry. And And then that's when fashion comes in. They're no longer in fashion. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, you can see how it happened. But they are the second chicken of America. Right. The second breed developed here. It's interesting to look at the different color variations. The black Javas have these very dark brown eyes. Mm -hmm. They don't have a crazy intense expression. It's sort of a soft expression. Yeah. Very pretty. But all the other collars have that intense red eye. Oh, yeah. That like coppery red (laughs) eye. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's really pretty, especially in the model birds. Yeah. As you said, they lay later, probably like eight to nine months old. Yeah. We're used to it. Exactly. It doesn't bother us. But they're also very slow-growing chickens, and it takes them almost a year to grow into the deep chest and the long back. Right. So again, doesn't fit industry. Now, they have an interesting detail on their comb. The first point on their comb is above their eye, not above the nostril. Okay. And it's an important detail when you're looking for breeding stock. The Livestock Conservancy notes that that comb point trait is one that comes probably from a pea comb ancestor. Okay. And that if you're looking for breeding stock, you really want to see that to make sure you have a purebred java. Okay. So, yeah. That's a good thing to look for. Mm-hmm. That's different, too. Exactly. They have a lot of little differences to them. <laughs> Honestly, I'd love to just all of us come together and make this bird popular again. Yeah. Because all the little things that make this bird unique. Well, you want a beginner's chicken? They'd be fantastic. They're gentle with a family. Yeah, they're great. Now, the hens are good layers of large brown eggs. Mm-hmm. 160 to 180 per year. Not bad at all. Especially for hens of like good birdie. And larger. Right. They do go broody, so they will hatch for you. Right. Talking with Fiona, we realized when well, we have our own chicks, we don't have... what well, you do. You're going to do broody with... The Nankins. The Nankins. But how much easier it is to integrate these chicks back into your flock yes. with a broody hen. So if this is the way to go and you don't care if you have boys or girls or both, right? a broody hen is the way you want to go. Well, that's one of the things that really makes them a great small farm or homestead or whatever you want to call it, small subsistence farm breed. If you're going to go really old school and say, go off grid for the most yeah. part, a broody hen is a natural way to do it. That's the way you want to go. I mean, we would have backup incubators, but the reality is, let's say you are doing an off grid homestead. If you're going to keep chickens, you've got to have a broody, hen. a broody hen. Yeah. So it just makes them such an amazing breed. The combs need some cold protection. Their comb is average Yeah, it's size. not super big. Yeah, it's not super big. They're larger. They're very well feathered. So they're going right. to do well in the cold yes. climate. Any bird that's a little bigger and that well feathered may not do as well in heat. So you're going to need fans. I mean, the notes say that they do pretty well in heat. Yeah, I've read that too. But I would still be prepared for heat problems. I say any chicken. Mm -hmm. We were just outside checking my babies out before we came back in and record. They opened their mouth once or twice to pants and I'm like, oh my God. I I know. know. (laughs) So it's just being careful with those things and having the fans and stuff like that Mm -hmm. for when they're set up. They are excellent foragers. A lot of the big breeds are content to be penned up all the time. Yeah. Javas are not. They really want to get out and get their exercise. Very good at bug control. That's a good thing. And those personalities, we can't say enough about their laid back personality and that they're very good family birds. Mm-hmm. For me, I want a chicken that I can hug. I want the kids to be able to hug. Yeah. Might not always get that. Every chicken's different. But right. this breed is known for being docile and gentle. You can handle them if you need to. Yeah. Exactly. What stands out about them, besides the fact that they're absolutely gorgeous and they have a fascinating but buried history, is how well they really do fit into the modern backyard or homestead. Nothing about them fits industrial standards, and that's absolutely perfect for what most of us want. Exactly. And apparently, at one time, there was a bantam version. Wow. But I could not find evidence that they do or do not exist one way or the other. So one of the only few downsides of this bird is they're hard to find. That's it. That's it, yeah. And so you can go to the Livestock Conservancy's breeder directory and use the search tools there to find Java breeding stock or Java hatching eggs. I have occasionally seen them on eBay. Buyer beware. Yeah. And I've considered getting them from eBay, actually, because I've had zero luck finding them anywhere. You can check in with the Livestock Conservancy if you can't get any answers and see if they know anyone. It's going to take a little bit of legwork. This bird is hard to to find. it's, It's hard to find. We're not joking about this. No, no. This is one that you have to really do some digging, find someone that's a private breeder, get hatching eggs. This is not a bird that's easy to find. And that's the problem once they start going down this road of, okay, they're out of fashion, then it makes them harder and harder to bring back to fashion, right, because right. then the average person can't find them. Like we can find Rhode Island Reds every single place we go, yes. But this chicken, you have to dig. So if you have room on your homestead for this big fluffy baby, I would say go for it. Yeah. Even the plain black java is absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Oh, yeah. The javas are reputed to have the most bottle green sheen in their black feathers. Oh, wow. But just with those dark eyes, they're just so beautiful. And then, of course, the mottled and the auburn are Gentle just giants. stunning. Yeah. So that's the java, America's second breed of chicken. Yes, and that's why we want to talk about it today. Yeah. Are you looking for a vintage small farm feel for your egg packaging this year? Or are you looking to develop a unique brand image with custom packaging? The Egg Carton Store offers a wide variety of recyclable cartons, customizable stamps, poultry care products, and a robust customizing tool to design your own labels. Plus, they offer fast, free shipping on all cartons and labels. Visit eggcartonstore.com for all of your egg carton, label, stamp, and poultry care needs this spring. Roostie's proudly sponsors Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. If you're raising chicks or keeping chickens, take a look at Roosty's store on Amazon.com. We've personally tested their products and we're huge fans. They have their famous nesting pads, those fantastic chick water and feeder kits, do-it-yourself port feeder kits, water nipple, and water or cup kits. And you don't even need to drive to the stores. They're all available for prime delivery on Amazon.com. Visit Amazon.com and check out the Roosties range or follow the link in our show notes. Okay, so now it's about that time that we go into main topic. Yay! Yeah. We're going to talk about our trip to the National Colonial Farm. It was a fun day. It was a fun day. That's a really, really fantastic place. I think if you have kids, they would especially like to visit there. Magpie loved it. Yeah. The National Colonial Farm is actually in Piscataway Park. Yes. It's in in Maryland. In Prince George's County, Maryland, which is where your husband's from. He is from there. And you know what? The trip took us a little over an hour and a half Mm -hmm. with traffic. A fun day. And at a certain point, you're kind of driving into a rural area with fields and trees, and it's very pretty. And it's on the water. Yes. You're essentially... On the Potomac. On the Potomac. So you're not too far from Mount Vernon. It's one of our happy places. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you're still on the Maryland side, but yeah. So the National Colonial Farm is an example of a 17th and 18th century tobacco farm. Right. It was not a humongous farm. When you think about it, George Washington, on the other side of the Potomac, was mm-hmm. known for growing tobacco. Right, right, So this was on the other side, and this was more colonial. It's before his time, but... Right. Tobacco was one of the most important cash crops that farmers, especially in the South, were growing. And it was and here in the right Mid-Atlantic. Yes. Right, right. And on the property here, there is a tobacco barn. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Of course, there is livestock in the National Colonial Farm. And it's one thing that draws us to these places. Of course. So they have American milking Devon cattle. Yes. They have Asabal hogs. All the animals were so cute. They have hog island sheep. Yes, they do. They keep a heritage breed of chicken. Icelandic. Yeah, which are gorgeous. And look different. So you can have a rainbow of chickens in one breed. Yeah, we profiled the Icelandic back in episode 33. Yes, we do. And they are a land race breed. So that means there's no set perfection of the breed. Right. They essentially Standard are allowed to... Of perfection. Right. They're allowed to range around and choose their own partners. And there are a couple of interesting things to know there. The first is that Icelandics are on the threatened category they are, of the Livestock Conservancy's poultry Conservation List. They also are presumed to not have been imported before nineteen hundred. Right. So it's not really representative of what would have been right. there. So the park, obviously the the administrators made the decision to conserve this breed. They wanted a heritage breed, they went with Icelandics. And I can actually see some of the logic because Icelandics being a land race breed. Right. You know, it would have been the same thing as a barnyard fowl wandering around ranks, free ranging, foraging Doing their thing. Right. This rooster has these girls, this rooster has these girls. Exactly. So while the farm is pretty historically accurate, correct. I mean, it's really amazing. Yeah. The coop had some modern additions that we were happy to see. I think that any historical place should make safety a priority even if it's not historically correct, right? because we have much better safety measures in play than in the colonial times. Right. If you're a historic site trying to preserve a heritage breed, you can't let it get wiped out by predators. Exactly. And these places are heavily wooded and heavily saturated with predators. Yeah, they're very rural. So you need to put some provisions. And the coop and run, they were very nicely done. Yeah. So it was a wooden coop. It was built very much in the style you would expect in the American South, mm-hmm. except the run, there was a run attached to it, and it was covered with a metal roof, and it had hardware cloth, Perfect. which I was really happy to see. Yeah, hardware cloth is what we want to see to mm-hmm. stop predators from being able to get in. Right. If you want a different type of chicken, but the same, go with Icelandic. Yeah, they're all different. They're really. They look. Really and they're the different. same breed. <laughs> Some of them have mohawks Some of them have tufts Yeah, exactly Some of them have a bigger comb Some of have a smaller comb It's like a rainbow breed all in itself They do all have white earlobes And they have white layers Right But they're really, really cool The thing about Icelandics Is that you can easily picture them As being a small-bodied chicken That an immigrant to early America Would have brought with them on a ship Oh, yeah Yeah They're definitely smaller I do get why they would have chosen this breed. Actually, in a lot of ways, it makes sense. Right. You can't get like the farmyard mix right now. I mean, you can and you can't. You can and you Exactly. To make it authentic, it would have to be the breeds that they would have had here in Maryland in the 1700s. Right. And what complicates that is that there were not that many recognized breeds until the mid-1700s. Yeah. And then you're talking about that handful of heritage breeds that we always mention. Dominique, Java. Yep. Nankin. Dorking. Dorking. And there's another one, the hamburger. Right. And so you'd have to have sort of a mix of some of those breeds. So this makes it easier. You have the Icelandic, Mm -hmm. they're threatened, and you have, I call it the rainbow tribe of chickens because they all look (laughs) different. Yeah, they're really cool. But they're the same. So because we're coming up on 4th of July, we thought the National Colonial Park would be the best place to go. What we didn't even think about is the fact that this is very, very centered on Maryland culture. Yay. Yeah. Chickens were in Maryland very quickly after Maryland was settled, and all of the writing, you know, the letters and correspondence from early America from Maryland in the 17th century mentions the abundance of poultry that was found on Maryland farms. That's one of the good things about living in Maryland. We were part of the start of everything Mm -hmm. and we have rich culture and history all around us. Right. So going to visit, taking the girls with us and showing them a little bit of this was very nice. It really was. And seeing all the heritage breeds, and that's the thing that they also touch on is that everything they have is a heritage breed. Exactly. Well, not only that, apparently they're very well known for conserving heirloom varieties of corn and tobacco. Right. And also, if you go to the kitchen garden, herbs, flowers, vegetables, and they even grow flax for spinning into linen. Exactly. Everything that would have been grown then to kind of live on the farm. And there wasn't a store. There wasn't (laughs) anything people didn't call themselves a homesteader. No. Or the, a small smallholder. They were just they, living. They were just living. They were living their right. life. There wasn't the Walmart down the road to go get what you needed. Right. You had to grow what you needed. Right. If you wanted cloth, you needed sheep because you needed wool. Exactly. And the big wool spinning wheel we you saw there. You wanted dairy, you needed the cows. Exactly. So that's why it was all farmed then. Right. And if there was a professional person, let's say a doctor, for instance, the doctor might have farmed part-time. The doctor may or may not have kept enslaved people to help on the farm. But doctors at that time were well-known for being paid in goods. Yes. So, you know, if you wanted to bring the doctor, I'm just making this up, a crate of milk and vegetables that, you know, that could be considered a payment. In some countries around the world, that is still done today. It's true. It's true. So paying in goods what a professional person doesn't have the time or ability to grow themselves mm-hmm. is definitely, you know, a nice thing for them. They like it. My general practitioner, I take her eggs. You're right. <laughs> and she loves it. When I go, I take her a dozen eggs and she's always like, I love your eggs. We're all kind of going back to our roots. My farm vet, when he comes for the sheep or the dogs, I send him home with eggs too. (laughs) Eggs. I love giving eggs out because it's what we tend. It's what we take care of. Herbs. I always put herbs with the eggs. These are the things that we grow. And it's nice to go back. That was just living. Right. That was day-to-day life. Right, because their cash crops were generally tobacco and corn. Yes. I think there was probably some wool that was shipped back. I'm sure. And that would depend on the size of the farm and the amount of sheep they could keep. But like we were saying, in Maryland, poultry were huge. So a while ago, I got my hands on a booklet, and it is called Colonial Poultry Husbandry Around the Chesapeake Bay. Now, where did you get this? I bought it on a used bookseller's website. It's definitely like old school. It's old. This is from 1983. Yeah. And so what happened is, in, and I had this long before we went on this visit. Yeah. So back in 1983, the Akakeek Foundation, who run Piscataway Park and the National Colonial Farm, they got a grant to have someone write, essentially it's a big research paper. It's a guide. Right. On Colonial Poultry Husbandry around the Chesapeake Bay. The author's yes. name is Elizabeth Pryor. This thing is fantastic. Sometimes you find it under the title, the National Colonial Farm Research Report number 15. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth Pryor spent, I don't even know how long, going through letters, correspondence, journals of all of these farmers around the Chesapeake Bay, especially in this area of Maryland. Yeah to find out what they did with their poultry. Right. There's some shocking stuff we learned in there, but not so shocking. Right. There's just some fascinating things. So we know that poultry generally were the provenance of the women. We know this. We know this. And we've seen this in many places, and this is no exception. The poultry tended to not even be counted in the landowner's records, probably because the women were taking care of Exactly. So what we've learned from this document and from visiting the farm is, again, how important the poultry were. And we should have said that also on the farm, in the national. Oh, let's list all the animals. We didn't list them all. We found that they have turkeys there as well, a breed called Jersey Buff. Yes. So again, they would have fallen under the women's care. But we were trying to figure out things like, okay, we know Maryland, when it's green and warm, there's plenty for your poultry to eat. But let's say it's 1680 and the winter hits. And it's 20 degrees. What do you feed your chickens? You were the one who was looking at the booklet. Oh, I read this cover to cover when I bought it. (laughs) But you you were talking to me and we were like, what do you think they were eating? And I said corn. Right. I was right on that one because corn was one of the top crops of the time. Exactly. It grows so well around here. Even today, if you look around Maryland today. Corn everywhere. Corn and soybeans. Yeah. Which I've started growing myself. Now, here's the part that's a little shocking, but not to us. Uh-huh. One of the other foods that they fed a lot of, which you said. Oats. Yes. And buckwheat. And mm-hmm. there was a push recently to push oats out of poultry diet, which is so crazy uh, to And that us. was, so while adult chickens definitely got corn, they definitely got oats, they definitely got buckwheat. Yes. If there was not a brew hen around and they were raising babies. Yeah. They got oatmeal. They it got cooked. It does oats. not surprise yeah. me. And it's been fed to them for such a long time. Right. And that's why going back in history and looking at these things and visiting these places, we can find the answers that we need. Oats to chickens from the colonial times. It was fascinating. The corn was fascinating to me because, as we said, the National Colonial Farm does a lot of work in plant preservation. Right. I'm going to geek out here. They grow a type of corn called dent corn, DNT, that was pretty common at that time. And dent corn was very high in starch. It made excellent cornbread. Right. And it was very good for the chickens. Everybody knows how we feel about our cornbread. We love some cornbread. (laughs) Maryland girls love the cornbread. But because it was this starchy, high-quality corn, it was excellent winter feed for the chickens. Right. And the heirloom varieties, they're not the same as our hybridized sweet corns these days. There was a different nutrient profile, et cetera. And they didn't have the big companies making them nutritional feed for their chickens back then. Right. The feed store was not dropping off a bag of Purina. (laughs) No. So, yeah, they they had had to go back to Whole Foods that they had available to feed these chickens. So, the corn was in there. And I love the fact they fed oats. Yeah. I love it because we have done that to our chickens. And you know what? It's instinctual for us. Yes. You know, it's something that our ancestors of our ancestors of our ancestors did. Right. And it's good for them. It is. Yeah. Eggs were still a big part of the staple diet, mm-hmm. and eggs would have been preserved. Right. Because we had developed these heavy-laying breeds. Right. Eggs were very seasonal. They're still seasonal. Right. But if you're talking about 1680, 1700 Maryland, eggs are extremely seasonal. And we'll be talking about that soon in an upcoming right. episode. Preserved. So they would have been preserving eggs. Wildfowl were still one of their primary sources of meat. Chickens were consumed, but not super often. It was like a chicken eggs. Right. It wasn't like a chicken dish every night. Some countries around the world don't look at chicken eggs as a protein source. Right. Our ancestors back in colonial times, mm-hmm. the people who were here, they knew it. Right. Did not eat the chickens, they ate their eggs. Right. Exactly. Excellent source of protein. They definitely did consume chickens, but there not wasn't a the, chicken on a plate every no. day. No. So if you're talking about homesteading in early America, you need broody hens. Yes. But some clever farmers, when they didn't have a broody hen, developed ways of getting eggs to hatch. Okay. And again, this is from the research report. Right. So if they didn't have any broody hen, there were some farmers that would box up the eggs and put them in the mouth of a warm oven, whether that was an earthen oven or a big fireplace hearth. Some of them would have a clay pot and they would fill it with wool And they would put the eggs in the wool, cover them with more wool, and they would bury it in like a hotbed where a fire had been. It makes sense. And if they maintained it for 21 days, they did hatch chicks that way. I was amazed. They came up with their own incubators. When you need something, that's when the invention comes up. Right. We don't have a broody hen. How are we going to hatch these eggs? We need more chickens. So then the inventive way of thinking in people comes out. I love that. And I love learning about the past and the fact that it's driven to where we are now. Right. One of the things the author does mention is that a lot of people wrote that they fed their chickens Not just in the winter. They did feed them some during the summer because they wanted to keep them around, close to their farm. They didn't want them wandering away. Right. And so a lot of the correspondents also mentioned people traveling through Maryland and at night, all the trees around the farms would be filled with the roosting chickens. (laughs) So can you imagine that? You got up in the morning and all your chickens are up in the trees. And they're crowing. That wasn't even just farm life. That was just life. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing, to be grateful for where we are in time now because we have learned all these things. And much more modern age, we can do what we need to do to keep it right, going. Right. These people were the pioneers. They were in a lot of ways, yeah. They had to figure it out. They did. That's why I love they going did. back. I love seeing it. It was a nice day, a nice walk. Well, if you're interested in homesteading or like a kitchen garden, yeah, the garden there is just fantastic. It's filled with heirloom herbs, definitely flowers, vegetables. That was one of my favorite parts. And we should mention that we made some videos. Yes. We have some on YouTube. Yes, we do have YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) We do, we do. So we're going to be trying to expand our YouTube coming Mm up and put a few more of our videos on there because we do a lot of cool stuff. If you just go to YouTube and search Coffee with the Chicken Ladies, it should take you right to our station. Yeah. So, yeah, start following us over there. You might check out some videos, some how-to videos that Mm -hmm. we'll be putting up. This visit, I just thought was super fun. It's not like going to Mount Vernon. We love Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon is our happy place. Right. It's amazing. It's gorgeous. But when you were at the National Colonial Farm, it's a big enough family that they did keep an enslaved woman, actually. But it's not a huge manor. This is more like... Everyday working farm. Yeah, Exactly. Did you know what tobacco looked like when it grew? Yes. I've looked at it before. Okay. I'm sure I have, but I was taken aback by it. I was like, wow, that is not as attractive as no, I <laughs> No, no. <But laughs> it's, it's like this big leafy mound. It, yeah. I mean, it just goes back to, you know, Mount Vernon is grand, George Washington's mm-hmm. home. But this is what a regular family would just be living and that's what I like to go back and see. It's fascinating to see the animals too. I'm a sucker for sheep. I'm a sucker for all of them. Right? I'm gonna sit there and ooh and ah overall. They're of all them. they're all fantastic. The sheep were important because since this is Fourth of July, we'll do a little bit of wool history. Yeah. The sheep were important because at one point the colonists in America were not allowed to import wool and they right? were not allowed to sell their wool out. They needed to make themselves clothing. And so wool was very, very important to the American Revolution. Yes. So farmers keeping sheep was huge. Yes. And we can't ignore the poultry because I think in so many cases, poultry ensured survival of people. Yeah. I mean, I think what some people don't understand is how far back the history takes us in Mm -hmm. poultry. Yeah. And how it's instinctual for us as a people to want to keep them. That means we were born chicken ladies. Yeah. Yeah. And I come from a chicken family. Mm-hmm. My great-grandparents, who were immigrants from Italy, had a commercial, very low-level commercial right. egg farm in Maryland right. in the 40s. So I am fifth-generational yeah. chicken farmer myself. I so. just come from a long line of small farmers. Yeah. yeah. And how this is instinctual for survival, right. most. It's fascinating to me. The history of early America is the vegetable crops, the fiber crops, and the livestock and how it wasn't just a fashion. It was for survival. It, really it was. just a way of life. Right. If you didn't get the wool spun, you were not going to have wool socks to wear for the winter. Or a sweater. The shawls you know. probably. Yeah. And how important the animals were to you and how they treated them with respect because they gave wool, they gave eggs, they gave right. dairy to keep the family going. And these people knew it. We highly recommend visiting the park anyway. But if yes. you're interested in homesteading, it's fascinating just to look where they were and what they had to do. Right. So and- they truly lived off the Land. You'll be really grateful afterwards. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. While we were visiting the National Colonial Farm, we found out that they're going to be hatching java eggs in the hopes of establishing a java breeding program. We have a great video interview with Allison, who is the Livestock Manager at the National Colonial Farm. If you want to see that, head to our YouTube channel at Coffee with the Chicken Ladies or our Facebook page or Instagram and check out what Allison had to say. She's really passionate about the heritage breeds and the work she's doing at the National Colonial Farm. It's well worth hearing. Okay, so happy 4th of July to everyone. Happy 4th of July. It was a great field trip. Yeah, it really was. We take some good ones. We do. I loved the National Colonial Farm. Such a great day. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now it's about that time for... (coughs) Cracking the eggs. Cracking those eggs. We went kind of cookout. Yeah, it's very cookout. For 4th of July. We did old-fashioned vanilla custard ice cream. Oh, my God. That is so good. And, you know, people might say they didn't have ice cream back during the revolution. Well, yes, they did. Actually, ice cream has a super long history. It originated somewhere in Asia. The first written record of it is like 700 A.D. in China. And get this, it was likely made from horse milk. Wow. By the Middle Ages, the Middle East had introduced sherbet, and India had brought coffee to the rest of the world. But... Oh, here we go. The Italians are credited with creating modern ice cream. Yeah, You did not create it. I didn't. (laughs) I'm Italian. I created it. And around 1695, they were the first ones to add eggs and create that creamy custard base. Okay. So they really did develop modern ice cream. Well, you go to Ocean City on the Boardwalk. Uh There's like the ice cream stands, and then there's the custard stands. Right. And I will one million percent go go to to that custard every time. It's so good. It's so I can't eat it anymore, but it's delicious. But it's like you know, it's like that soft serve cone. The soft serve cone just tasted like ice and skim milk after you ate that custard. And the course custard is always the most crowded Mm -hmm. because it's delicious. It It is at such a richness. Oh, they do. They do. And, you know, it comes back to the fact that we talked about how eggs were such a common protein source in Italy. Yep. The first mention of ice cream in early America was in 1700 in the state of Maryland. (laughs) So Maryland Governor Thomas Bladen served ice cream to his guests. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Oh, they were both serious lovers of ice cream. Serious ice cream fans. So it was popular in early America. So I would say it seems really appropriate for our 4th of July episode. We're sharing this old-fashioned version of ice cream that uses egg yolks for thick, rich custard base. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're cooking for very young children or anyone elderly or immunocompromised, you may wish to use pasteurized eggs. The eggs are whisked over heat. But if you need to be careful, use pasteurized. Yeah. So your ingredients. Now, you're going to use a cup and a half of probably full fat milk. I think if you're going to go and do ice cream do this. you might as well just do full of everything. And you're going to do a cup and a half of heavy cream. Okay. Now, if you want to do dairy-free like me, you're going to use three cups of the thickest dairy-free milk or dairy-free cream or dairy-free half and half that you can find. Okay. I went with, actually, the brand Silk has what they call Next Milk. Okay. And it's oat milk and coconut milk blended together. It's very thick and creamy. It worked really well. You want a half of a cup to three quarters of a cup of granulated sugar, depending on how sweet you like it. Okay. Four egg yolks. And you're going to use a tablespoon of vanilla extract or two teaspoons of vanilla paste. Okay. So if you're using an electric ice cream mixer, you Mm -hmm. know, with a canister, don't forget to put the canister in to freeze overnight. Oh, yeah. If you're doing an old-fashioned ice cream maker, make sure you have plenty of ice and rock salt. Mm-hmm. So, you're going to make the custard and then chill it overnight. So, plan to start making this the day before. Your cookout. Right. The day before, when you, whenever you want to serve it. So, you're going to start off in a small bowl. You're going to start off with the egg yolks and you're going to whisk them with about half the sugar. Okay. And whisk until they're light in color and then just set them aside. You're going to get a medium saucepan and you're going to go over like medium-low heat. You're going to combine all the dairy, the milk, the cream, and the remaining sugar. You cook that, stirring occasionally, until bubbles start to form around the edges of the pot. Okay. And it's at a simmer. Once it's simmering, take it off the heat. Okay. And then you're going to temper your eggs. Oh, wow. We all remember how to do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So a spoonful or a small ladle at a time, you're going to add it to the eggs and mix it really well. Yep. You're going to combine that until you've mixed in about half of the hot cream mixture. Okay. And then you're going to add it back to your pan, Mm-hmm. put it back on the stove over medium-low heat, and you're going to cook it until it thickens and coats the back of a spoon. Right. You know, where you can leave a finger trail on the back yep. of the spoon. And then you want to add your vanilla and check this frequently because you do not want to overcook that custard. No, you do not. And it's really that easy. You take it off the heat and you pour it into a bowl to chill it. If you ended up with any cooked egg bits, you can put it through a sieve or a strainer oh, yeah, to get of rid course. of that stuff. Yes. Chill it overnight and the next day into the ice cream mixer. Yep. It's that easy. You can always serve this with blueberries and strawberries. You can actually add things into it if you want to. We just left it straight vanilla, but you can add fruit puree. Yeah, that's what I would do is like kind of take your strawberries, put some sugar with them, Mm -hmm. let it sit for a while, and your blueberries, and then pour that over. And for 4th of July, you have red, white, and blue. Oh, that's perfect. It's a great cookout recipe. You're going to really impress all your guests. Yep, yep. No doubt. It's really delicious. And it's simple, but delicious. Mm -hmm. If you do this, take some pictures of the 4th, send them to us. We'd love to see We would love to see them on our stories. We'll give you a share. Okay, so let's move on to Retail Therapy. Retail Therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have had a blast with this week's Retail (laughs) Therapy. It's been fun. So we sat down and decided for the 4th of July, Mm -hmm. we went with the second chicken of America. Right. We visited the National Colonial Farm, which is really fascinating if you're on the East Coast and have a chance to go. And we talked all about that in our main Mm -hmm. topic. And we did our vanilla custard ice cream. Which we know was served in Colonial America. Yes, which we know was served at Mount Vernon right there, early America. So we go to retail therapy. And what do we do? We stay in the same time period and we find a facsimile of the first American cookbook by Amelia Simmons. Ever put out and and published. It was published in 1796. And we both own it. Yeah. It's not very big. It's a small facsimile, and it actually, it's even annotated. And you can buy it on Amazon for five ninety five. It's not very expensive. No. You can go to our Amazon storefront and pick up a copy. I would say I love it to just have it as complete in my library. I'm another one who loves books like you do. Mm-hmm. I love to have books around that I can just grab and look at. This book, we went through together and laughed because it is written for you in 1796. Right. And part of what you're going to (laughs) see is that in the typeface then, S's were often substituted with F's. So if you're adding sugar to a recipe, you're adding Fugger. Yeah. (laughs) We just had a lot of fun going through the book and looking at some of the recipes that we saw. My favorite is the Goofberry Pie. (laughs) pie. My favorite was the Diet Bread, and I will talk about that later. Yeah, it is super fun. I mean, Amelia Simmons was essentially a domestic servant slash housekeeper. And she did a great job. Yeah, so she was upper crust. What she was trying to do is put measurements to things so to make it easier for people to cook. We were laughing earlier. I'm like, look, it says bake quickly. And you were like, look, they didn't have an oven to put 350 degrees on. You You had had to put it it over the fire. There was no timer to go off for you. (laughs) no timer. it's just a look back in history Mm -hmm. during that time, what everybody kind of went through. Now, one other small and very fun thing about this book, it includes the first cookie recipes in U.S., It does. first cookie recipes. It also includes a cake recipe in which you're going to use five pounds of flour and 21 eggs to make this cake. That's a big cake. That's a big cake. What? Super big cake. Mm -hmm. Like, we're talking cookout. I mean, you could have a monster cookout. Well, I mean, I will say that a lot of this stuff would have been served by people with more money who were entertaining. And so they might have had a cake that big to serve all their Christmas guests or something. I'm like, where are you baking this? Because even when we go to Mount Vernon, I'm sorry, that fireplace does not look that big to make this cake that's probably huge. The one in the kitchen? Do you yeah, think that you cake could, would yeah, have fit been- Yeah. That fireplace is enormous. Five pounds of flour. The other possibility is they have an earthen oven. Oh, and okay. that it could also be baked in there. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many cool recipes. Now, the thing is... To actually make a recipe, you really have to decipher. Like you're going to have to kind of change it up a little bit and and know what you're going to do because it was written for 1796. But the diet bread, I mentioned this before, <laughs> it calls for nine eggs, and you have to beat them for one hour. Well, that's why it's a diet cake because you're <laughs> going to burn fine. so many calories that you're going to have a deficit. You can, can eat all nine eggs. Beating nine eggs for one hour? No, I can't. I mean, like you beat them for 30 seconds, you're like, oh my God. Like, I mean, one hour? (laughs) It's a long time to beat eggs. (laughs) It's a long time. Nothing but you and a bowl of eggs and some whisk. That's the one that said bake quickly. Well, that's the funny thing. It doesn't even use the proper adverb. It says bake quick. Bake quick. quick. I'm not sure what that means, but we had fun going through it. It was hilarious. And it's a good addition to a library. And if you're a foodie, like you were saying, yeah. You want to try to make some of these, and you're going to have to look up some of the words for the mm-hmm. measurements because you're not going to know. Right. It talks about drams, and we looked it up. A dram is an eighth of an ounce. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the really interesting things I found, because I recently made some of my own for baking, a lot of these recipes call for rose water. Yes. And I know they did grow roses at Mount Vernon. At that point, they were probably China roses that came in on China tea clipper ships. Yes. Yeah. But I thought that was really fascinating. A lot of them called a for lot of rose ro- water, occasionally orange water, but it was more commonly rose water. One of the other things I really enjoyed is that the writer gave some specific heirloom vegetable varieties that she liked. So she mentioned that Hal's potato, yes. she thinks is the best. She also had a potato pie. She did have a potato pie. No, was it a potato cake? I actually, I think there was both. Her favorite pear is the Bel pear. But I got to tell you, Miss Amelia Simmons was a real fan of the pea. (laughs) She was. She She was. was. Like no fewer than six or seven varieties. She says that the crown imperial pea is the best. The crown pea is a close second. Third, we're going with Early Carlton. <laughs> and I actually think I've seen Early Carlton in some catalogs, but I thought that was really interesting as a garden geek out. I really think for five ninety five on Amazon, the book is worth it to take a look back in history. I'm dying to try to remake some of these things, like the Goofberry Fool. The <laughs> part. She does give some hints and some ways that you check eggs, you were saying. There's a paragraph in here about how to check eggs. And she tells you the shape that's ideal. And essentially, she tells you to candle them. She says, hold them to the light yeah, to see if they have... Make sure have, have baby in there. Well, what she tells you to look for is the yolk in the center. Yeah. And then she tells you to do the water test. So if she they knew. stay on the bottom and they don't move, they're good. If they bob up but stay on the bottom, they might be close to going stale. And if they float, you don't eat. You do not eat. She says they're addled and of no use. <laughs> addled is a good word. I mean, she really has some stuff. She even has a recipe for gingerbread in here. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of desserts. I couldn't get over the cake that called for 21 eggs. That's a big cake. I mean, now if you have extra eggs that you want to get rid of, you, know when's you a need good to make time? this cake. You know when is a good time to make this cake? When? Right now. Oh, yeah. So I'm saying. You got 21 eggs. You don't <laughs> know what to do with them. You're like, I'm going to make a cake. And then somebody's like, how many eggs are in this cake? Normally, it's two to three. Twenty-one. And then you make yourself diet bread after that, and you beat the eggs for one hour. That's an arm workout. That's why it's a diet bread. You just burned 500 calories. <laughs> no, because there was nothing else in it that made a diet. Man. And the other thing you realize is there were no diet restrictions back then. There was dairy, meat... I wonder if there were were there like people that suffer from gout. Doctors would say, "Don't drink so much wine and don't have such oh, a that's rich the other diet." Thing. So many recipes included alcohol. Yeah, yeah, that helps preserve a lot of mm-hmm. wine, brandy. We saw in a lot of the recipes. We had a good forty-five minutes of just sitting here, going through this book and loving it. And if you try to say some of the words with the F instead of the S, you'll just have fun. <laughs> it is. It kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> Read one, Holly. In okay, orange pudding. Put 16 yolks with half a pound of butter melted. Grate in the rinds of two Seville oranges. Beat in half a pound of fine sugar. Add two spoons orange water, two of roaf water, one gill of wine, a half a pint of cream, two Naples biscuits <laughs> or the crumbs of a fine loaf, or roll folked in cream. Mix all together. Put into a rich puff paste, which let be double round the edges of the diff. I'm going to read you the recipe for orange pudding. Okay. Put 16 yolks with half a pound of melted butter. Grate in the rinds of two Seville oranges. Beat in half of a pound of fine sugar. Add two spoons of orange water, two of rose water, one gill of wine, a half a pint of cream, two Naples biscuits or the crumb of a fine loaf soaked in cream. Mix all together. Put into a rich puff paste. Which be double round the edges of the dish. Which I think that means fold back yeah. the pastry and bake like a custard. Sounds good to me. It sounds like an orange custard pie to me, and it sounds really good. Yeah, it sounds really good. The thing that kind of goes with what we're saying is there are a lot of custard recipes. Mm -hmm, Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, using the eggs for their richness. (laughs) And that's one of the interesting things about the cookbook to me is there are no actual egg dishes in here. No. But there are a ton of dishes that use a lot of eggs. Like 21. Yeah, like 21. A lot of pies. A lot of pies, a lot of of tarts, Mm -hmm. puddings. And I think I'm definitely going to try to make one of these recipes. I'm really intrigued by this orange pudding. I'll pick one of them to make, though. It's a great addition to your library, The First American Cookbook by Amelia Simmons. And it's awesome. It's awesome to sit here and see how things were done back then. I don't understand. You can tell me as a historian, why was the F put in for the S? I'm actually not sure. I don't understand it. In some I, of the words, she does it, and some she does not. Right. So I'll have to research that, honestly. I should have before we did this, but it didn't cross my mind. I was yeah. too busy focused on the eggs and food. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. So, should we tell everybody what we're going to be talking about next week? Next week, we are talking about a French breed, the Mayline. Yay! Gorgeous chickens. Our main topic, we are interviewing Heidi Carnot. Heidi is the founder of an amazing new chicken rescue in France. Yes. Champs-Lives-Apple. They have done tremendous work with rescuing former laying hens in France. Just wait till you hear her story. You're Mm going to love it cracking the eggs is a salmon quiche. Oh, yes. Mm, I hope Can't we have wait. some dill in there. And our retail therapy is Roosties. We're going to be reviewing their port feeder kits. Oh, yes. We love them. The water is too while we're at it. Can't wait. Happy Fourth of July to everybody. Hope you have a great day with friends and family. Be safe. Yes. And then what should we tell you're ready to do until next week? Hug your chickens. Every day and kiss them too. Don't forget. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to see more of us, please follow us on Instagram at Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. If you'd like to help us grow the podcast, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, please visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. Thanks for listening.